1: Welcome back to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni. Uh, I'm here with Mark, as usual, and uh, we're going to discuss uh, a case that New Civil Liberties Alliance has that was filed by our colleague Sheng Li. Uh, we moved for preliminary injunction to stop the government from uh, taking points away on a test from one of our clients. Uh, and, and, and John's of- being
0: modest. He was on this motion too. Uh,
1: I was on it, but I, I. I know who ran it. So in any event, we'll
0: give Shang full credit for sure.
1: But Luhan and the U.S. Department of Education and the, and the Secretary of Education, um, we've sued them in, because of how they're running um, the fulbright Hayes doctoral project, which is, um, it's been around since the 60s. And w- what it was is an effort Um, during the Cold War and during the space race and and, and get uh, more uh, students involved in foreign languages so that the United States in its diplomatic and educational um, contest against the Soviet Union would have more people who spoke the languages of wherever the Department of State or, or, or other agencies sent them. And so this program went merrily along for many, many years and then in the 90s the uh, application they they the, the agencies the department of education started taking away points if you were raised in the foreign language so you both had to speak english at a high degree of fluency and the, the foreign language as a as a very high degree of fluency and um what they what they decided was they didn't like people who had been raised in a certain language, taking advantage of this. And uh, this this 15-point native language penalty was huge. Our our client, Miss Ahmad, uh, had just beautiful, beautiful scores. But when you took away 15-point on, I think it's 105-point uh, area, it's very hard to compete. And um, there are there are many, uh, you're not supposed to um, discriminate. The federal government is not supposed to discriminate against a person because of their national origin. And this really um, hits these people. And it is not required by the statute. So we've moved for a preliminary injunction because our client wishes to apply for this program again, and she doesn't want to be penalized while they're they're looking at her application, and all her interviews went well, and and people's and and the comments on all of her submissions were just stellar, and the only reason this was prevented was because she was she was born in Kuwait, and by the way, her application is in Jordan. They're different countries. I I try to tell the Department of Education that uh, Jordan is not Kuwait. Um, now the language is Arabic, but um, there there are different types of uh, you know different accents and all the rest of it in the Arab world like everywhere else. And one of the things you have to do to be to get the type of grades on this test, and in general to be a doctoral fellow, is you have to have a very high degree. I the, I maybe some of you have heard the joke about the kid who comes home with an F in English and his father says, How can you get an F? It's your native tongue. Well, <clears throat> that story explains why this this um bureaucratic rule is so silly because You have to take an awful lot of English and an awful lot of Arabic to be able to speak, write, and reason in both languages as fast as you have to do to be one of these doctoral fellows. It doesn't, the fact that you had, uh, you spoke it as a child or from the home doesn't mean that you can read and write it, doesn't mean that you can, uh, you you have that sophisticated knowledge of a language um, that you have to only get through education. Um, she couldn't do this if just right off the, right off the block coming from her house, she had to study Arabic again and again and again, um, through, through a long time to get to her level of proficiency in both that and in English. So this rule mark really makes no sense. And, and, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't for most of the, the period we're talking about wasn't even in, in, it wasn't even a rule.
0: And, um, well, we so, talked about this about six weeks ago, uh, but I thought that one of the things that that sort of uh, uh, was elucidated in this uh, in this motion uh, for preliminary injunction is is just how you know not so much how big a penalty it is, but how uh, far we have strayed from the statute uh, here with this with this regulation.
1: Yeah, exactly, and, and what what. Not only its language, but what it was for. There, there was no penalty. Um, the, the Congress didn't put a penalty in, and they didn't Correct. say that. And, and they didn't say that there was a purpose to only have Native American speakers. If you weren't bilingual in any way, that you could go ahead and um, uh, apply. Uh, apply. Uh, they're those are the only people who can apply. But this rule. You know, uh, Miss Ahmed, she's at Georgetown. I mean, it, it's a very rigorous program, and um, and there's no says the Georgetown alum. It yeah, says the Georgetown alum, correct? <laughs> um, but the the fact is is that um, that they've put it in for what appear to be bureaucratic reasons. I mean, I really can't figure out what the. I, I'm not sure, Mark, even what the. The problem they're addressing here is
0: yeah, I'm not sure. Unless I mean, maybe in the mid '90s, all the people who were winning Fulbright scholarships were people who weren't born in the United States, and they, if you know, someone at the Department of Education thought, well, this isn't fair, we need to we need to give you know native-born Americans a chance to win these things. But you know, if if so, then that's an issue for Congress. I don't think you fix that with with a regulation. And it's not even clear to me that that if the point here is. People who I mean these are American citizens. So if the point here is to have American citizens study abroad and have have and maintain and develop facility with languages, why does it matter whether they were native born or not? It shouldn't matter. and the fact that it does here is why we're alleging national origin discrimination uh, in in this lawsuit.
1: Yeah and, and that's another thing that I think and I'm I'm most familiar with European language And I think of Spanish that if you're a native Spanish speaker, how you speak, speak and write and all the rest of it matters a lot on what country you came from. If if, if you're if you're if you're coming from Mexico and you're going to Castile in Spain, you know, you you better have studied that language. even even if it, it's Spanish, it's not the same kind of Spanish. And my father, I'll always remember that he was raised in a in a Neapolitan household, speaking Neapolitan. But he had to take Italian when he went to go to school in Bologna. The, the fact that he was in an Italian, what would be called by the State Department, an Italian family, didn't mean that he could read and write and speak Italian well enough to study medicine. Uh, it, it's just not true. The premise of the, the right, premise right. of. The idea is just not true. You you couldn't you couldn't do it if you had not done the academic requirements in that language that they seem to be encouraging. You, you couldn't just do it because you came from that kind of background. It would be impossible. Well, and the so, thing pe-
0: people have to understand is this kind of law gets looked at with strict scrutiny, right? It's subject to strict scrutiny because even the government admits it's overtly discriminating based on national origin here. And when you're doing that, then strict scrutiny applies. And I don't think there's a compelling government interest here, John. I mean, you and I are both sort of struggling to even see what the interest is at all. Certainly, the department hasn't articulated a compelling government interest. And certainly, the penalty is not narrowly tailored, right? I mean, this is a this is a dramatic penalty that essentially excludes everyone in this situation from, uh, from getting one of these Fulbright scholarships. So I'll be curious to see what the government response brief says.
1: Yeah, so she was excluded from these 15 points, and I just want our listeners to see what a huge – she got like an 84 or 82 on the various tests. So she would have had, she would have had a 97, okay? She would have at least, at minimum, a 97, which is way over where most of the people accepted are. I mean it's a really high score. and And so what you're doing is you're excluding a person. You're excluding a person who's obviously really good at everything they want in this program. <laughs> Which which is not it goes to your narrowly narrowly telling uh, point, Mark, but also compelling interest. I have been a little mystified by this case since I first saw it, because it it just you know, usually I can figure out why they're doing something, even if I don't like it. This one just kind of baffles me. Um, But one of the things we say, which we say an awful lot, and I and I I, uh, think that it's extremely important is an agency. Has no power to act unless Congress conferred that power, right? And we say this in many of our briefs from Supreme Court case. Um, and here, the Congress puts in this statute. The statute is in place for a reason for a very long time, and then they only changed it, Mark, which is kind of interesting. They only changed it after the Cold War ended. I mean, did they did they no longer think that it mattered, or 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 uh, I mean, that is the interesting thing at the time when it was most important and what it was used for. They didn't have this rule. And then um, when arguably some of the initial impetus for the law went away, they changed it. It's the 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 administrative agency
0: did. Um, well, I think that I, was after Senator Fulbright was no longer in the Senate. That's, that's true. when they changed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there so, is that there is you know, that he might not have been there to watch him. Uh, like a hawk, like he probably was originally,
1: <laughs> so um but uh so, and we make these points so so in our in our motion for preliminary injunction and and everyone has to probably remember there's a very high standard to get a preliminary injunction. you have to show uh reparable harm, and here you know it's another another year she wouldn't be in the program and, and and it might be the last year, I mean, you can't just apply to these things forever um and and so there's irreparable harm and i think there is and then also if, you, if you're violating a national origin or discriminating on race or any of those things that's just an irreparable harm as far as the courts care all the time so right. we're very hopeful on this motion right? yeah and we're very hopeful on this motion and we hope be, uh this is really one where uh bureaucratic rules
0: Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. We uh, I wanted to talk, John, to our audience about uh, something that we're doing here at NCLA called the Ginsburg Scalia Fellowship, and it's a it's a program that we just uh, that we just started uh, this summer. Uh, it was uh, it was my brainchild to invite in nine uh, what we're calling Scalia Fellows and nine Ginsburg Fellows, and so eighteen students who are, they're law students, they're here at other places in D.C. for the summer. So we've asked law firms around town to nominate these folks to participate in the program. And we're bringing them together for, uh, you know, for approximately nine sessions uh, with top uh, scholars to come in and lecture to them on administrative and constitutional law topics. And what we're really trying to do is promote civility. And we're trying to maintain that legacy of civility that, uh, that that the famous friendship the collegiality right of justice scalia and justice ginsburg was legendary and we're trying to to promote this idea that even though you may disagree and you may you may strenuously object john to the views that someone has on the other side uh, of an issue that you can still do so in a civil form and fashion and that 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 idea seems to have gone out of favor at some of our top law schools around the country and so we thought well let's invite students who are here for the summer from some of these top schools, let's show them that you can have active debate and civil disagreements with people from the other side uh, of an issue. Uh, and and let's maybe seed this concept of civility and send these folks back to their schools to be uh, exemplars of this kind of engagement with people on the other side uh, of issues that, that they uh, disagree with. And the response has been fantastic. We've got great uh, great students in the program from many of the top law firms around uh, around Washington D.C. Reuters did a nice write up uh, of the program, John, uh, talking about some of the some of the firms, uh, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name them because I'll leave some out unless I run through the whole list. Uh, but but several of the top appellate shops in D.C. Uh, sent folks uh, sent both uh, Ginsburg and Scalia fellows uh, to us, and uh, and they and they come from many of the top. Schools, including uh, your alma mater in mind, you know, Georgetown University, of Chicago, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, etc. And so it's great to have these uh, great to have these students uh, with us uh, for for the for these sessions. And we're meeting, uh, as I say, sort of once a week for about uh, eight or nine weeks here, having a lecture from a from a top scholar. We had uh, uh, Randy Barnett from Georgetown this past week was the was the lecture. Of course, Philip Hamburger. Uh, And Janice Rogers Brown kicked off the first section a couple weeks ago, and then we have dinner. They break bread after after the lecture and continue to have an active discussion about the topics that uh, that we talk about. So it's been a great program. I hope that it's. uh, I I expect that it'll continue uh, next year, and we'll we'll get another chance to to do it with a new group of people, and there'll be a kind of a maybe even an alumni component to this fellowship over time. Uh, But but John brought to my attention an article uh, from Yahoo News this week that uh, by Nicholas Goldberg and the title of the article is, is is Clarence Thomas a nice guy? Would you want to be his friend? Which uh, which made me laugh, because if you've ever been around Justice Thomas, uh, yes, he is a nice guy. And yes, you would want to be his friend. He is. He has the heartiest laugh. I think you would agree, John, anyone I've ever heard. I mean, it is. It's both it's loud it's infectious it's genuine and it's a hearty hearty laugh and it's uh uh it's one of the reasons that it's that it's fun to be around him and he's a little bit of a uh i don't think prankster is probably the right word but i uh uh but you know someone who's who's happy to mix it up a little bit and and kind of tease you and i'll just i'll give one example i uh uh you, John, you've met Greg Jacob, who's on the Board of Advisors uh, here at uh, at NCLA. Uh, he was in charge of the moot court board at Chicago, uh, I believe, our third year of uh, of law school. And he had invited uh, just or the moot court board had invited Justice Thomas to be one of the judges for the moot court at uh, at Chicago. And I had uh, participated in the moot court. I had fallen just short, was not going to be one of the one of the finalists in the moot court and uh, and. Greg was a, a friend of mine. He was going to go to the airport and pick up Justice Thomas. He said, "Why don't you come with me? At least you'll have the chance to meet uh, Justice Thomas." And I said, "Oh yeah, that sounds great. Why not? I'll you know I'll do that." And so, you know, sure enough, we show up at the airport, pick up Justice Thomas. He's super nice, and he's talking to Greg. And then he sort of says, "Well, you know, why are you here?" And so we kind of ex- explain, and he's like, "So you didn't do anything to be here?" <laughs> and he was giving me the hardest time about about just coming along for the ride he's like oh so you're just along for the ride huh <laughs> and he was really you could tell he was just enjoying kind of needling me a little bit uh, about that and uh uh it was good natured but it was uh, uh it was funny so the, the thing that that uh Goldberg talks about in this article is that Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor had come out recently and talked about uh how she uh, really likes uh Clarence Thomas that even though you know, she's probably considered the most liberal uh, member of the court that uh, and Justice Thomas is arguably the most conservative member of the court that that they and then their philosophies are very different that they get along very well. And she says, look, he's kind. He knows the name of every employee in the building. He was the first one to send her flowers when her stepfather died. And, and so she can be friends with him and still continue their daily battle over differences of opinion in cases. She she said that was a quote. So, it's interesting that she would do this just at this time, John. When there's been all of the tumult over the the leak uh, from the court, uh, Jenny Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas's wife, has been under fire for uh, some of the the uh, communications that she uh, apparently had with some folks at the White House uh, on January sixth. Uh, and so, a lot of the this article points out that a lot of Sotomayor's otherwise, uh, fierce supporters were not pleased with her coming out and saying nice things about, uh, justice Thomas and, and some of the, and, and Mark, the she does,
1: she's, she has not her, her dissents just even, even in the New York case, uh, on guns. The, I mean, she's not pulling any punches in her, in her writing no, and she's I don't not think she,
0: her, no, no mm-hmm.
1: she's not softening. So I, this is something, and, and I, it's absolutely necessary in the law. Um, and and yet people say oh then then she's not really fighting for us and and I'm like listen she's fighting for her view of the constitution she's putting it in writing i mean you can go read it it, 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 it that's what's so frustrating to me that yeah.
0: uh oh oh now we have to be nasty to people
1: it's ridiculous
0: well and and since when has been being nasty uh, been Persuasive. I mean, I don't. I've never been persuaded by someone being nasty to me. It just doesn't. It doesn't work. I mean, honey attracts more flies than vinegar is what my mom taught me. And it, this idea that you have to be nasty to someone on the other side. Look, Justice Sotomayor is is locked in a in a long term. It might not, it might not be a six to three majority for you know for a long time, but uh, it's going to be a while uh, that it's either six to three or five to four. And there's no reason for her to be nasty. She needs to persuade some of the folks. On the other side, if she wants to prevail, occasionally, as she has prevailed occasionally, I mean, they've pulled over Justice Gorsuch uh, on occasion. They've pulled over Justice Kavanaugh on occasion. So the idea that 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 there's nothing in it for her to to play nice uh, is wrong. And just because she may not think she can pull over Justice Thomas uh, very often, that doesn't that's not an excuse to be to be nasty. So people who are calling her tone deaf or saying that she's smoking marijuana. Uh, to 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 have these views. They don't understand that that there is a point to collegiality. And whether it's Ginsburg and Scalia or it's thomas and and Sotomayor, uh, old-fashioned liberals understood that friendships across the aisle and and civility toward people that you disagree with, that's not hypocritical. it's not it's not a betrayal uh, of of your principles in some you know in some form or fashion. It's just a way of getting along with people. And the, uh, you know, the, the idea that these folks on the Supreme court, uh, that their, their fellow colleagues aren't people that they should make an effort uh, to get along with, I think would be, would be terribly uh, disappointing. And it's not, I mean, you might say, well, okay, that's all well and good in Congress where you have to have compromises and you're trying to, to reach, you know, there was the, the vote, uh, on, uh, uh, on uh, some gun control measures, I think there were red flag laws, John. If I if I understand correctly, uh, this week there were some votes uh, in uh, in the legislature, and uh, you know, I I haven't read the legislation. I don't know how I would have voted on that. Probably probably wouldn't have liked it. Uh, but the idea that you have to be nasty to people on the other side if you disagree with them about a contentious vote just doesn't hold water uh, with me. And I think, I think sometimes people are afraid, John, that if you're nice to people on the other side, that that means you're going to be more likely uh, to compromise. And I don't know that that's right, I think, or if it is right, I think it's right for a different reason. It's not because you're softening on principle. It's because if you're actually talking to people on the other side, if you're actually listening to people on the other side, then you may find out that you're not as far apart as you think. And there may be room for, you know, you may actually, there may be some common ground that you only discover because you're open to listening and you're, you know, so it's not that that they move, uh, you know, if you're a conservative, it's not that that you move left or that they move right. It's that because you're having a conversation, you find out that, hey, there's a little more middle ground there than we realized. And in fact, there's enough middle ground that we can get something done that we wouldn't have been able to get done if we had both just retreated to our corners after throwing punches at each other. And I have to
1: say, I I practiced law a long time as in a private attorney, and there were there were people who picked their lawyers on how mean they could be, and they often didn't get good lawyers and didn't get good outcomes, but they had a mean lawyer.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. People think that some for some reason that, particularly in divorce and some in other contentious settings like that, that they they want someone who's not just going to stand up for them with good legal arguments. They want someone who's going to to fight in a mean way. And I I, I have to say I haven't. Uh, I haven't really ever quite understood that. Now, I, I think it's interesting that even this author for for Yahoo News says, "Now, well, of course, we shouldn't we shouldn't compromise with white supremacists or insurrectionists or adherents of QAnon. Or, uh, such people need to be marginalized uh, so that more reasonable people uh, can work together." and And I think I think even that talk is a little bit dangerous because it's very easy to brand someone with one of those terms that that may not deserve it. And if if that's your way of avoiding Dealing with somebody, if if you're going to say that that you know, someone falls in some category that makes them untouchable, well, then you're not trying very hard to be to be civil. Uh, so you know you need civility for democracy to function. You need civility for the Supreme Court to function. And I'm really glad that Justice Sotomayor has come out and said nice things about about Justice Thomas, and and, and I hope that that, that bodes well uh, for the court. Future.